Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Dale is doing everything he can to keep keep Sterling behind him because Dale knows that Sterling's got a fast car. The three car down. Big trouble. Big right behind him. I guess he's all right, isn't he? The 2001 Daytona 500 began as a fairly typical day at the racetrack. Exciting for sure, the race is one of the premier events in the racing world year in and year out, but there was nothing out of the ordinary about this particular race. There were interesting storylines and a group of talented drivers, but it's safe to say that nobody ever suspected the race would end up turning into one of the most tragic days in NASCAR history. And Barney Hall just talking about you going out and representing the senior citizens very well. You're not that old. Easy now. I'm not 50 yet. Just take it easy, guys. You know, I got a lot of years of racing left. I don't uh, don't talk about me yet. I mean, when I go to start sitting on the porch a little more, then you know, you talk about me being a senior citizen. But right now, I'm I'm having to pay full price at the cafeteria. That was NASCAR driver Dale Earnhardt on February 18, 2001, just moments before he strapped into his iconic number three race car to chase his second career victory at the Daytona 500. The 49-year-old was already a living legend, and he was confident and relaxed before the race. Still competitive in middle age, Earnhardt was a vocal critic of where the sport was heading in terms of safety protocols. The previous year, NASCAR instituted a series of restrictions related to the springs and shocks used on the cars, prompting Earnhardt to complain that NASCAR was taking, quote, racing out of the hands of drivers and the crews, and lamenting that the organization had, quote, just killed racing at Daytona. Earnhardt was old school and considered injuries part of the sport, as he walked the walk, recently coming back from a neck injury that limited his mobility and caused numbness in his arm. And NASCAR caved to the stars of its sport in many ways by developing a new aerodynamic package for the cars racing at Daytona and Talladega, which made the cars even faster and led to thrilling races like Earnhardt passing 17 cars over just the final four laps to win the 2000 Talladega race for his 76th professional win. But getting a second win at one of the premier racing events in Daytona would be a real feather in his cap, particularly since he was starting to pass the torch to his son, Dale Earnhardt Jr., who was also racing that day in the number eight car. Earnhardt got off to a fast start in the race, leading for 17 laps. It was a relatively clean race too. There were only two caution flags for the first three quarters of the race. Earnhardt even successfully avoided a massive crash on lap 173 and seemed to be cruising toward a top three finish behind only his son and Michael Waltrip. During the latter stages of the race, Earnhardt had actually been serving as a rear gunner for his son, blocking Sterling Marlin's attempts to pass and prompting Fox commentator Daryl Waltrip to note, quote, Sterling had beat the front end off that old Dodge just trying to get around Dale Earnhardt Sr. Nobody knew at the time how tragically prophetic his words would be. On the final turn of the final lap, Earnhardt made light contact with Marlin's car and slid off course. As he attempted to regain control and turn back onto the track, he crossed in front of and collided with Ken Schrader's yellow number 36 Pontiac. Earnhardt's car crashed head-on into the retaining wall, and the violence of the impact was so severe his right rear wheel fell off and the front hood pins severed, causing his hood to open up and slam against his windshield multiple times. 
When both cars finally came to a stop, Schrader, who was relatively uninjured even though his car hit the same wall during the crash, immediately climbed out of his car and ran to check on Earnhardt, frantically pulling down his window net and waving his arms for paramedics to come over. Earnhardt was extricated from the car and immediately taken to Halifax Medical Center. The racing legend was pronounced dead on arrival. I'm Derek Kaufman. I'm Jason Beckerman. And this is Last Days, Dale Earnhardt. Race officials actually threw the checkered flag and the yellow caution flag marking the crash at the same time, and the end of the race was a mix of celebration, confusion, and concern about Earnhardt. Michael Waltrip ended up winning the race and was even enjoying a victory lap, later saying he was waiting for Dale to get to victory lane and give him a hug. Dale Jr. actually finished second in the race and immediately rushed to his father's location on the track. What should have been a joyous celebration of Jr. beating his legendary father and nearly winning the race turned into a tragedy. As Dale Jr. and the rest of the world would soon learn, the situation was far worse than anyone expected. Reporters rushed to speak with Ken Schrader, who was really one of the only people to see Earnhardt in the immediate aftermath of the crash. What he had to say was hardly encouraging, but didn't necessarily sound tragic at the time. Kenny, let me ask you, I know you've been thrown this question several times and you're just getting out of the care center, but you, you made your way over to Dale's situation. What's going on there? Uh, I, I don't really know. I'm not a doctor. I mean, I, I got the heck out of the way as soon as they got there. And how about yourself? How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Just thinking about Dale and him, guys. Ten years later, Schrader finally revealed what he really thought when he first went to check on Earnhardt, saying, quote, here's the deal. When I went up to the car, I knew. I knew he was dead. Yeah. I didn't want to be the one who said, Dale is dead. Dale Jr. later reflected on the scene at the hospital, saying, I walked right into Dad's room. I knew right away when I saw him that it was just as bad as it could be. I turned around and walked back out and sat there for 30 minutes in that hospital before they told us he was gone. The forensic investigation of the crash revealed exactly what happened during Earnhardt's final moments in his iconic number three race car. Earnhardt's car struck the concrete retaining wall at nearly a head-on angle, and he was traveling at an estimated speed of 161 miles per hour. As a result of the impact, the car experienced a nearly immediate change in velocity of approximately 44 miles per hour at the moment of impact. That means when it crashed in, Jason, it dropped by 44 miles per hour, yielding a force equivalent to a vertical drop from a height of 62 feet. That's like being dropped out of a six-story apartment window. And the reason I want to convey this is when you watch the crash footage, it doesn't look that dramatic. I mean, you know the cars are going very quickly. But you have to look at the numbers a little bit to know the force of impact when he hit that wall because it looks sort of like just a normal race car crash. Nothing lifts out of the air. He's not tumbling or anything look, like that. Look, I mean, nothing crystallizes it quite as much as thinking about a car dropping from a six-story building, right? Yeah. It, it, uh, almost directly onto, onto its hood. And you can just imagine the violence of that impact and what it would do to anybody who's inside. That's exactly right. So according to NASCAR's crash report published six months after the crash, Dale Earnhardt's death was most likely caused by a blow to the back of the head, not from one single cause, but from a combination of unusual factors. These included the uncommon severity and trajectory of the car's impact with the wall, which we just discussed, an immediately prior collision with Schrader's car that put him out of position, and a separation of the left lap belt under load that allowed greater motion within the car. So essentially, to break that down, Earnhardt's left side lap belt, his seat belt, separated during the crash, allowing his body to twist forward and to the right inside of the car. His chin then impacted the steering wheel, 
and he suffered a second blow to the back of the head as he rebounded from the impact into the back of his seat. So you can imagine, Jason, he's jostling in the car. As the car impacts, his body's twisting too much from the lap belt failure, and he hits his head on the steering wheel and then blows his back. Chin, I think hits I, his chin, I think. Hits, hits his chin, I'm sorry. Hits his chin on the steering wheel. Head and then, blows back, and he strikes again the back of the, the seat, the, the headrest with his head going backwards at enormous velocity. That's exactly right. So the back of Earnhardt's skull had been exposed when his open face helmet, the style he wore, spun around when he hit the wall. So he has this helmet, he's jostling in the car, his back of his head is exposed, and that's what makes the impact and kills him. The official cause of death was later revealed by the Volusia County Medical Examiner's Office as a basilar skull ring fracture. His non-fatal injuries included eight broken ribs, a broken left ankle, and a fractured sternum. A basilar skull ring fracture is the most serious type of skull fracture and essentially involves a break in the bone at the base of the skull near the brainstem. It often leads to major bleeding and near instantaneous death. Even though the fracture occurs at the back base of the skull, the injury is often caused by impact of the chin, jaw, and face, or impact near the top of the head. Although easily the most famous NASCAR death on the track, Earnhardt was not even the first victim in the sport to die from a basilar skull ring fracture in the past year. In fact, Adam Petty... Kenny Irwin and Tony Roper had also died from the same injury during the previous eight months. And like most other drivers at the time, Earnhardt refused to wear the head and neck safety gear that had, in fact, been developed, these restraints that could have prevented his death. Yeah, you know, this will come up as we discuss this episode, but some drivers, the newer drivers typically, if you're being general about it, were wearing some of this equipment because the jostling around that I described is what caused his death. And, you know, the lap belt failure, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that as well, but it's really the violent jerking of his head forward and backward is what killed him. And there are restraints that were already um, invented at the time. So you touched about this. At this time, as we'll discuss in a few minutes, there were a lot of technological advances coming that, that were designed to protect the drivers that were for safety mechanisms that were being put in place to protect drivers. He was old school, though, and we've seen a lot about a lot of this in the NFL, right, where where some of the old school guys say that they are sort of making the game safe at the expense of the integrity of the sport. And that was the camp that Dale Earnhardt uh, fell into. Right. He was one of these guys who believed in the integrity of the sport and even wrist injury to the point you were making. And, you know, these these apparatuses were available to help safety, but not a lot of people were were bringing them, were using them at the time. We're seeing a lot more of it now. Yeah. Like you can imagine him saying something along the lines of, I like to be able to move and be aware of my surroundings. Sure. And they are restrictive. Like yes. the, the devices that are now standard in, in racing do restrict your movement, but they make it incredibly safer to perform the sport. And what was happening was these two things were happening. The cars were getting faster and more aerodynamic. Yes. So the violence of the wrecks was getting more impactful and the safety mechanisms that could have helped prevent some of the injuries weren't adopted weren't as quickly as they could have been. quite yet. Yes. And were, right, exactly right. And you okay. had this perfect storm and that caused sort of the death of Dale Earnhardt. Now, once the Volusia County Medical Examiner performed an autopsy, public interest in photos and other reports quickly picked up steam. Earnhardt's widow, Teresa, filed a lawsuit in Florida to stay the release of such information to the public. She obviously didn't want these photos out of her husband sort of dead in his car. The Orlando Sentinel and other media outlets eventually filed motions to intervene in the case, asking for the right to inspect and copy public records, including these photographs and video. The judge ends up ruling in the case against the media companies. Remember, you're in Florida here, and uh, a lot of the values can be different in different and jurisdictions. And also, Dale Earnhardt was a legend, a legend of a sport that is dear, near and dear to Florida. Florida, obviously at the Daytona 500, and it's a race that he had won in the past. And there may be, the, I'm sure it would have been a hard 
call for the judge to allow these photos of this legend to be released. I think that's exactly right. The case winds its way through the appellate courts until the U.S. Supreme Court eventually declined to hear any further appeals. In March of 2001, the Florida legislature actually passed a law, which is now known as the Earnhardt Family Protection Act, which changed Florida's longstanding open public records laws and deemed medical examination, autopsy photos, video, things of that nature, um, to be exempt from public inspection, absent express permission of the deceased next of kin. And remember, you've heard yeah. about this in our previous episodes. This came up in the Lisa Left Eye Lopez case and the Bob Saget case, which Bob Saget perished in Florida and took advantage of these types of his family, yeah. his, fa- his family used these laws to say, you can't just release these things. We've been through this with Dale Earnhardt. This is just for gawking at at morbid photos. And we don't want our family to go through this. So it's an interesting wrinkle on this, how this death actually set the stage for others. Yeah. If you're shopping while working, eating or even listening to this podcast, then, you know, and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, and Walmart, and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. So download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's Rakuten, R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Following the announcement of Earnhardt's death, uh, which garnered huge media attention and devastated fans, they congregated at the Daytona International Speedway and video from the crash was featured on every major news station. A huge public funeral service was held on February 22nd, 2001 at the Cavalry Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's hard to overstate his importance to professional stock car racing and his resume, Derek. It's really tough to beat. Seven-time NASCAR Cup Series champion, tied with Richard Petty and Jimmy Johnson for the most. He won the Daytona 500, as we talked about, in 1998, in the Brickyard 495, countless other races in his Hall of Fame career. He earned the nickname The Intimidator. That's what I knew him as growing up. And The Man in Black for his famously intense and aggressive driving techniques. He was from a famous racing family. His father, Ralph Earnhardt, was one of the best short track drivers in North Carolina and won the NASCAR Sportsman Championship in 1956. Uh, Dale's win at the Daytona 598 after 19 attempts was one of the most important moments in racing history and seemed to signal a final triumph for his career. Before the next season, fans began speculating about Earnhardt perhaps retiring and passing the torch on to his son, Dale Jr., who is making his Winston Cup debut. But even with his legacy secure, the elder Earnhardt showed a late career spark and didn't seem ready to ride off into the sunset. He saves a race car up almost against Bobby Labonte. Dale Earnhardt Sr. has come from 17th spot in four laps to lead it on the final lap. He also pulled off a controversial win over Terry Labonte in Bristol, Tennessee and flashed some of his trademark no apologies attitude in the aftermath. Earnhardt, riding on old tires and all but finished in the race, bumped and spun out Labonte during the final lap and was serenaded with booze for his aggressive maneuver. 
Erhardt would say in typical Intimidator fashion, I didn't mean to turn him around. I just wanted to rattle his cage. Yeah, I want to emphasize he was the badass of racing. Yeah. He was old school. He's a little bit crusty. He was very aggressive and known as the Intimidator. And so it wasn't though he was universally beloved. I don't want to say he was a villain. There are people who loved Dale Earnhardt, but he was a controversial racing figure for, for many years because of some of these tactics. I, I think that, you know, the reputation that he had at the time was, yeah, there were people who, who loved him and there were people who hated him, but I think more they loved him hate him it was exactly it, it was sports hate you know the way that yes. people hate lebron james they didn't really hate him they just loved to hate him because he was beating their favorite guy and he was in your face he talked a lot of smack yes he was one of those athletes that you see in every other sport but you hate him but you deeply respect exactly him. Right. it was exactly so incredible right. it's like lebron james yeah. it's like you can hate him all you want but when he's playing against your team you hate him because he's so good right and, you, and, he, and everybody should see he was on their team you know exactly. and, and he was he was for a lot of people this was their guy and man was he beloved by whatever segment of the population loved Dale Earnhardt. he really was uh, but if he was part hero and part villain in the racing world during his run all of that would fade away in the wake of his tragic death as fans mourned and others lashed out at people they thought might be responsible for Earnhardt's death so just days after the crash, Sterling Marlin, who was in this heated end of the race battle with Dale Earnhardt, they were bumping each other and it's what caused the initial bump is what sent Dale Earnhardt into the wall, started getting hate mail. Sterling Marlin was getting the lots of hate mail and death threats from fans who blamed him for Earnhardt's death. This actually prompted Dale Jr. to step in and intervene and ask everyone who loved his father to stop blaming Marlon. And this was a really important moment because Dale Jr. was new to the racing circuit. He was the he was the son of a legend, but he was just entering uh, this this world. And he really didn't want this to sort of sidetrack. He had to sort of step in and say, this is part of racing. You know, yeah. my father passed away from something that is part of this sport and he really didn't pile on. And to his credit, uh, while he was grieving, intervened and said, everyone lay off Sterling Marlon. Marlin. So then the fans turned their attention to a man named Bill Simpson, um, whose company Simpson Performance Products made the seatbelt that I mentioned failed during the crash. Daryl Waltrip defended Simpson, saying NASCAR is an emotion sport and all the fans love their drivers, but the blame was placed in the wrong place here. And for his part, Simpson insisted that the belt had failed because it was installed uh, improperly uh, to increase Dale Earnhardt's comfort inside the car, which several people familiar with the situation stated was the case and does make sense for a star of his magnitude. Now, remember, there's these lap belts, but unless they're installed properly, uh, they don't work and they can be prone to failure. So what, what Simpson said is the belt is just fine, but Earnhardt is a fussy driver and he wants to be comfortable and he wanted movement in, in the car. There was a reason why he wasn't into the restraints as well. And so he's saying, you can't blame me for the failure of the belt that you install improperly to increase his comfort. In any event, crash investigators later determined that although the buckle position in Earnhardt's harness indicated that the belt had failed, this did not play a significant role in his death. Although his body twisted, what really caused the death was that chin hitting the steering wheel, bouncing back and hitting the back of his skull. In the wake of the tragedy, NASCAR dramatically shifted its focus to driver safety and implemented a series of changes to protect drivers. We talked about that these things were out there. Some of the younger drivers were instituting them already, and now NASCAR makes them mandatory or at least strongly encourages the drivers to implement them. First, many teams migrated from traditional five-point safety harness to a safer six-point safety harness. Second, NASCAR started to strongly encourage the use of so-called HANS devices, H-A-N-S, uh, which stands for Head and Neck Support Device. Initially, NASCAR did not immediately compel usage of the HANS device. A subsequent accident on October 4th, 2001 resulted in the death of Blaze Alexander at the Charlotte Motor Speedway. Alexander had been competing for the lead against Earnhardt's oldest son, Kerry. 
Carrie's car flipped on its roof and Alexander crashed into the wall in an accident that was eerily reminiscent of Dale's incident at the Daytona 500. Shortly thereafter, the Hans device was mandated for use in NASCAR's top three series races. Yeah, so this was the most important change. Um, another thing that happened third was NASCAR began requiring the use of SAFER, and that's all caps, S-A-F-E-R, barriers at racetracks, which stands for Steel and Foam Energy Reduction Barrier. The soft walls now feature foam and they move slightly on impact, which dissipates the energy and results in less force being exerted on the driver upon impact. Remember, as I explained, when Earnhardt's car hits that head-on collision into the retaining wall, there was an immediate drop in speed, right. and as it was that immediate drop in speed that his body took. Yeah, and that that those walls did not have this. He did not have the foam inside. They were hard as rocks, and they were meant to protect, I guess, the people in the stands. But there was no thought of the driver being protected by the wall, and that all changed. That's exactly right. And fourth, NASCAR began the development of the Car of Tomorrow that incorporated a range of safety features that ended up in the so-called Gen 6 race car, which includes a better roll cage, uh, larger roof flaps to keep the car on the ground and prevent flipping at high speeds. And at the 2020 Daytona 500, Ryan Newman's car was spun out, sent into a wall and launched into the air before it was hit by another driver on the way down. He suffered serious injuries, but survived the crash, which many then finally realized and attributed to these new safety features. So I've seen video of this crash in 2020. It's horrific. It looks way worse uh, to the to the untrained eye than Dale Earnhardt's crash that took his life. But the car is so souped up with safety features that although he's injured, he walks away from this accident in a way that Dale couldn't. So Derek, this brings us to the counterfactual here. Dale Earnhardt, a man in his late 40s at the time of the accident, but if he survives this this run, if he survives this race, what what becomes of him, and what's his career look like going forward? What's his personal life look like going forward? It's really interesting. We wanna we wanna indulge in these counterfactuals and say like there was a lot left to give. With Dale Earnhardt, he was cemented. This guy is on the Mount Rushmore of racing. I looked up some of his stats. Every list that you see out there puts him in the top four. Which to to our the way we describe things, that means you get to live on Mount Rushmore. He's up there with Richard Petty, who's the sort of king of all racing, the early racer who had two hundred plus wins. Jeff Gordon is another racer who everyone thinks it might have the title of the best. He actually had a few more wins, but he had way fewer cup series. Dale Earnhardt had those seven cup series, which are highly vaunted in, in the world as in the racing world as making you one of the best ever when you win the season, right. so to speak. And then there's Jimmy Johnson, who was also a seven-time champ, just like Dale Earnhardt. But those are the guys who exist up there. And Dale Earnhardt, notwithstanding the fact that he perished in 2001, lives on Mount Rushmore to this day. Although you talked about the fact he still had this late spark, right? He was not done. He had been actually doing quite well in races. He's on his way to a third place finish at Daytona, right? Yeah, this no is slouch. The, this, is, this is the preeminent uh, race in, in, in NASCAR, and Absolutely. he's going to finish third. Clearly, this guy's not at the end of his line. He's 49 years old, and as in every other uh, sport, um, age takes a toll. Your reflexes become less stern. You less time you enjoy being in the car, you know. And sure, and some all people the, joke that you could race for longer, but the reaction time really slows it, down. It really it's does. A sport. And not only that, he was really bristling against the safety measures that were coming. Now, was obviously his death expedited things, but even without that, these state safety measures were coming quickly in the next couple of years. And he was not somebody I think was going to sit around and wait for these things to come along. I think that's exactly right. So just a year after the accident, Dale Jr. opened up about his father's lasting legacy in racing and the emotions of returning to Daytona for the first time since his father's death and racing on the very same track where it happened. And I really wanted to give him the final word on Dale Earnhardt Sr. 
I had a couple of decisions to make. I could sit there and go, I don't ever want to come back here again. I don't ever want to be near this place again. This is where he died. Screw this. Keep me as far away from this freaking track as possible. Or, you know, I could embrace it and go, this is where he died. This is a special place. This is now a place that brings me closer to him. You know, when I'm in, when I stand on, in this spot on the racetrack, I feel closer to my daddy. This is where he lost his life, breathed his last breath right here. And so that's what I decided to do because I knew I was going to keep racing and I knew I was going to have to keep coming back to that track and I couldn't let that be a miserable experience every time I went. <laughs>